0: This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. North Korea, a nation whose GDP is below that of Jamaica or Malta, has just finished testing a record amount of missiles. Missiles that pose a very credible threat to global powerhouses like Tokyo or Seoul. And by all estimates, Maybe had a threat in cities like Los Angeles, Washington DC and New York in the very near future. And the reality of the situation is that as the North Koreans develop their program, this situation will continue to escalate. The larger the threat they pose to the US, the more worried people become, the more of a political issue this becomes, and the more a president feels like they have to intervene. So with that in mind, I once again want you to imagine yourself as the incoming President of the United States. You come into the job watching citizens panic, as a nation whose air force you at number 5 to 1, whose military you at spend 750 to 1, threatens to attack many of the major cities of the United States. But you see the power disparity between the two of you. Surely this isn't even a contest. So, as president, you decide enough is enough. 13 US presidents have come and gone, and no one has been able to solve the issue of North Korea. So, you decide you you're the one who's going to solve this problem once and for all. So you make some calls and gather your military chiefs, and begin to devise a plan that will end the North Korean regime. Fast forward a few days later, and you're sitting at the head of a long mahogany table, surrounded by the heads of the army, the air force, the navy, the marines, and some of the best and brightest policy minds currently available to the US military. And in front of the room, you passionately argue that we need to end the inaction on the Korean peninsula, and that you want to knock out North Korea once and for all. After all, it's better to do it now whilst they can't launch nuclear weapons at the United States, rather than to wait for when they can retaliate directly upon US cities. The generals begin to talk amongst themselves, and then place five plans upon the table for an invasion of North Korea. The first one to speak is the army. This first plan, plan A, your army chief suggests that they push across the DMZ into North Korea. A journey that will mean US personnel crossing a million landmines and will require going into the very teeth of North Korea's massive artillery divisions. But if successful, will put the US Army right into the heartland of the DPRK, or North Korea. It's certainly a bold proposal, but whilst you look over the maps with lots of red arrows all over the place, he does chime in and warn that the casualties may be quite high, with his estimates somewhere around the 20,000 US casualties a day an entire Vietnam War of troops dying every three days in this operation. The very thought of that snaps you out of it. Not a chance in hell you're getting re-elected after that. So you close them in the La folder on Plan A, and look further down the table and turn toward the Marine General. The Marines put together Plan B, an amphibious landing on the west coast of North Korea. After all, it's only a short journey from the major South Korean ports in the northwest of the country. And the Marine General explains... Sir, our operation will drop troops 50 miles from Pyongyang and completely avoid the DMZ. That is a relief to you, not having to cross the DMZ. So you ask him to elaborate further, and what does he need to carry out the operation? The Marine General then retorts, Well, we'd probably need the entire 7th Fleet placed into the Yellow Sea to support the operation. And at that point, everybody's eyes begin to widen. And before that Marine General can even pull out his next map, one of the political advisors asks, Well, isn't that almost guaranteed to provoke the Chinese into a war, whilst at the same time turning the entire 7th Fleet into a sitting duck? With the entire 7th Fleet sitting less than 100 miles from the Chinese coast in very shallow water. Surely at that point you're just tempting the Chinese to get involved. Staring daggers at the political advisor, the Marine Commander grumbles, but agrees. Shoves his myriad of maps back into the mineral folder and sits back down. At that point, the Navy Admiral from the other side of the table now pipes up, and brashly places Plan C onto the table, a landing on the east coast of the North Korean peninsula, explaining, Sir, our ships will take off from Japan, we'll land on North Korea's east coast, and we'll avoid antagonizing the Chinese too much. we even assume that we'll be able to get two divisions ashore with only about 30% casualties. At which point the perturbed Marine General interjects with, and then what? How are you going to fire and supply your men across that 750 kilometers of mountain passes, all of which stand between you and Pyongyang. That's a minimum six month campaign, all while Seoul is being shelled every single day whilst you slowly walk across a mountain pass. Admiral, I must say you will win the battle but you will lose the war for us. Always admiring the naval infighting, the Air Force Chief now pipes up. Sir all the proposals put forward by my colleagues here today are frankly an absolute waste of US lives. I guarantee that with our overwhelming firepower we can hit every site, government building, training camp and airfield between Seoul and the Yalu. And being an air campaigner it won't cost you millions of lives like these other proposals do. To you, as president, this sounds quite appealing. Quick strikes, air power, and a lot less letters to write home to grieving mothers. So you press further and ask the Air Force Chief, and you're sure you'll get everything. The Air Force Chief pauses and then says, well, we'll get some of them. Our estimates would assume that uh, the North Koreans will only be able to hit us with about half of their current missiles. Oh, and uh, Mr. President, I also can't guarantee we'll get Kim either." This reality pushes you back. The plan would mean declaring war on North Korea and still allowing them half their missiles to hit you with. The plan almost seems like it's just poking the bear, guaranteeing retaliatory strikes whilst not actually solving anything. And above all of that, Kim can simply just outlast you by sitting in his bunker exasperated and annoyed, you turn toward your political advisor, who puts forward the final plan. Plan E. Decapitation. Sir, we want to use precision strike, or special forces team, to eliminate Kim Jong-un once and for all. Clean, low casualties, and we probably won't start a war. Out of the five proposals just heard by the President, this one seems like the most reasonable. But before you can begin to unpack it, the Marine General once again interjects with a Son, you understand that's not going to solve the problem. If you kill Kim Jong-un, the government in Pyongyang isn't just going to stop. The political advisor probably wasn't hoping for this question, and goes on to explain, well, one of a few things might happen, uh, either his sister, herself quite ruthless, might take over, in which case, unfortunately, we might just be back to square one. One of the major worries we do have is that the military takes over, as some of them have long advocated for first strikes against the south, so we worry that eliminating Kim Jong-un may just put a general in charge who has always advocated for a nuclear first strike policy. Frankly, Mr. President, I, uh, we can't be sure who would take global power." The room is painfully silent, and you feel like you could almost cut the air with a knife, as you stare down at the five plans. Plan A gets millions of Americans killed. Plan B almost guarantees a war with China. Plan C advocates for an awful months-long slog across the mountains as Seoul takes damage day after day. Plan D is frankly in a half-measure and doesn't solve the problem and plan E is a roll of the dice with no idea who takes over the reins from North Korea, which could be for the better, but far more likely will be for the worse. After the meeting, you now have some understanding why the other 13 presidents, who all more than likely sat through almost the exact same meeting, also chose option six, the option of just maintaining an uneasy status quo on the peninsula. But you have something different to these presidents. These presidents didn't see Pyongyang, acquired the ability to hit DC with nuclear weapons. And that does change the equation here. So as president, what should you do? Out of these six bad options, which is the best? And are there any other options out there that don't risk the collapse of South Korea? Or even worse, war with China? Well, that's the question we're going to be answering today. Looking at what war plans the US have at their disposal, how destructive each of them would be, and what the long-term repercussions are as well as how the U.S. is likely to deal with the upcoming tipping point where Pyongyang acquires enough missiles to pose a credible threat to some U.S. major cities. And to start this conversation, and take us through the war plans currently on the table for the U.S., we turn to our first guest. Part
1: 1.
0: An Abrupt Armageddon
2: I think the biggest problem we face in thinking about that is that in the 1950s, North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons. We learned in the Cold War that use of nuclear weapons could totally change what would be otherwise the uh, conventional force outcome. If I'm North Korea, I'm not going to start a war. If I'm Kim Jong-un, I'm not going to start a war in which I use only conventional weapons. That's a losing proposition. The Kim family has known that for 40 years, and they have been making adjustments since the early 1980s in order to deal with the U.S. and rock uh, conventional developments. If I'm Kim Jong-un, first of all, I'm not going to start a war just because I wake up some day and it's pleasant outside and the birds are uh, singing and the bees are humming. I'm going to start a war because I'm afraid I'm about to be overthrown internally and I got to divert my military. I worry that we're thinking about my grandfather's war and not Kim Jong-un's most likely war."
0: Bruce Bennett is an adjunct international defense researcher at the RAND Corporation and a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Bennett's work at RAND applies to wargaming, risk management, deterrence-based strategies, and military simulation and analysis, with a particular specialization in asymmetric threats, such as weapons of mass destruction, with his particular theater of expertise being Northeast Asian military issues. His work with the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the U.S. Defense Threat Reduction Agency, the U.S. Forces in Korea and Japan, the U.S. Pacific Command and U.S. Central Command, as well as the ROK and Japanese military high commands, and has even worked with the Republic of Korea's National Assembly, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
2: Well, it'll all depend in part upon how many nuclear weapons he really has, and we don't know the answer to that. If he's got 50 nuclear weapons, as some of the uh, scientists postulate, then uh, he'll probably focus mainly on South Korea, focus mainly, as he said he would on October 10th, on neutralizing airfields, destroying ports, and destroying military command and control doesn't need it on the battlefield because the rock ground forces have seriously thinned in recent years but does need it to deal with where the rocks have been putting their money which in particular is on their air force bases and they don't have many they've got 12 fighter air bases that they use where their infrastructure is arrayed and not much in the way of dispersal
0: capability In a scenario where the DPRK, or North Korea, does declare war on the ROK, South Korea, and they launch their strikes, hitting the majority of their targets, does the DPRK then follow up these strikes with a conventional invasion across the DMZ?
2: I don't expect Kim to necessarily push across the border. Look, Kim is absolutely paranoid about outside information. His troops cross the border, and they're going to be immersed in outside information. There is no way he can stop that information from getting back to North Korea. So that's not an ideal outcome for him. My sense is he wants to neutralize the most serious South Korean military capabilities and then tell South Korea, look, you got a choice. You can uh, cause a ceasefire again right here, right now. Clearly, I have military superiority, so you're going to do some things I want you to. That doesn't mean I'm going to occupy your country or try to control it, but I am going to want things like, oh, maybe $50 billion a year, you know, about 5% of your GDP or less. Uh, What's the big deal? Just give me that and I'm satisfied.
0: If Pyongyang does launch nuclear strikes at South Korean military institutions, but leaves most of the civilian infrastructure alone, do the Americans then retaliate with a nuclear counterstrike?
2: First of all, the, will the Americans retaliate with nuclear weapons? If North Korea has three to five ICBMs, sure the Americans will. But if North Korea, in five or ten years, has uh, 50 ICBMs pointed with nuclear weapons at American cities? What's an American president going to do? Is he going to tell the Americans that, uh, yeah, we're going to intervene with nuclear weapons in Korea, but hey, we're going to take about, oh, 10 to 20 million American killed as a result. That's a hard proposition, and that's exactly where Kim wants to go.
0: Well, if the DPRK reaching that point effectively takes that card off the table for the Americans, will they look to intervene before they reach that point in time? But Let's say if the Americans find out that the DPRK are just five years away from retaining 50 ICBMs, would they look to launch a preemptive strike in order to prevent North Korea from putting him in that position?
2: Could well do that. It depends upon the character of the president. So yes, if the president is looking at this kind of outcome, it's possible. But we also have to remember if we're talking five to 10 years from now, that South Korea is building what they call their kill chain which is intended to destroy North Korean ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. Japan is building its counterstrike capability, which is largely identical to the kind of thing South Korea is trying to do with their kill chain, trying to destroy North Korean ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. So, any of the three of us could start going preemptively. And even if we don't go preemptively, Kim's not going to fire all of his nuclear weapons in one shot. He may fire a good first strike, but he's going to keep weapons to try to achieve agreeable outcome. And if he does that, that gives us lots of good targets for American weapons, for South Korean weapons, and for Japanese weapons, all of which can be very accurate. And so even conventional weapons could do major
0: damage. North Korea is notoriously difficult to get information on, and many of the nuclear weapons may be underground in bunkers or positioned on mobile launchers, making it nearly impossible to be completely sure you know where they all are. So if the Americans do seek to target them, how certain can they be that they've got all of them?
2: Getting all of the weapons in such a case is probably not the key objective. Key objective is to getting as much as you can. North Korea has got a major limitation. We hardly ever hear this. But historically, North Korea built 5 to 10 Scud missiles for every launcher. That means even after their first launch, they've got four to nine missiles sitting underground somewhere. If we know where that location is, we can do a lot of damage to his ability to continue the fight. So that's the kind of thing that those capabilities amount to. They don't have to be preemptive, they could be used as a counterstrike, as Japan is saying they would do. It won't stop the initial damage, but it may gain control of the warfare situation.
0: So we'll talk a bit more about the political options later, but militarily, what would be on the priority list of targets for the US military? Would it be military bases within the southern DPRK? Would it be airfields? Would it be Pyongyang? Would it even be the Yombion nuclear facility within the north of the country? what would be the top priority a Pacific Command?
2: The priority in my mind would be the existing weapons. So Yongbyon is important for where North Korea would be in three to five years with regard to building weapons. But if I'm fighting a battle right now, I want to get rid of the existing weapons. So that would be a key priority. The other key priority is going after the regime and trying to eliminate it, though, though, as you said earlier, uncertain about who would wind up taking over and whether that's better or worse. One of the things we should recognize is if Kim is going to use nuclear weapons, he knows we're going to go after him. That's the U.S. doctrine since the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review. We said if North Korea uses nuclear weapons, the regime will not survive. In the 2022 nuclear posture review that the US just put out said exactly the same thing. But Kim therefore is likely to go deeply underground. There is a National Academy study from almost 20 years ago that was done looking at the ability to destroy deep underground facilities with conventional weapons. And that study says probably can't do it. You probably have to use nuclear weapons. So this will all turn on the U.S. willingness to use nuclear weapons against North Korea and the potential consequences of doing that. If you want to go against the regime, conventional weapons have a relatively low probability of accomplishing that objective, and therefore, I wouldn't put it high on my list if I'm taking nuclear weapons off the table.
0: Having a nuclear exchange on day one makes this a very quick and very costly war. And once that genie's out of the bottle, well, all bets are off. So let's put nuclear weapons aside for a bit and assume that both sides want to keep their nuclear arsenals in reserve. In a conventional war, the US would have three avenues of approach into North Korea one, an amphibious landing on the west coast of the country, two, an amphibious landing on the east coast of the country, or three, pushing north across the DMZ, or the Demilitarized Zone a 250km wide, 4km deep belt separating North and South Korea, armed with over a million landmines. And once they get through those landmines, they then come upon 13,000 North Korean heavy artillery pieces that have all been sighted, targeted and ranged for crossings of the DMZ. And once we get through those, you then enter an array of fortified interlocking bunkers, armed with everything from flamethrowers to anti-tank weapons to machine guns. So with all that in mind, let's look at option 3 first. How difficult would it be for the Americans or allied forces to cross north across the DMZ and into North Korea?
2: You've got several challenges trying to go north of the DMZ that we don't often talk about. Remember that U.S. forces and also rock forces, ground forces, key parts of those forces are mechanized forces. Lots of very heavy vehicles, lots of trucks for logistical purposes and so forth. If you move north from the demilitarized zone headed towards Pyongyang, just a little bit up above the Kaesong area, which is right across the border, there is a series of three tunnels which are used to basically support the major highway that goes up towards Pyongyang. Any of those could be blown conventionally They could also be blown with nuclear weapons that would leave the area radioactive and therefore difficult to clear. And the difference between blowing tunnels and blowing bridges is, usually you can replace a bridge fairly quickly. Blowing a tunnel, if you've done a good job of it, that's gonna take a while, and sure, your infantry could go north, but North Korea is going to be able to do a fair amount to that infantry, given their massive artillery capabilities. So that option has got its limits.
0: So let's talk about an amphibious landing of the west coast of North Korea, which does have its advantages, as landing here, particularly in somewhere like Changsan, would put us very close to Pyongyang, in fact, within 40 kilometers. But it does come with a lot of downsides. For now, let's put aside the awful beaches they'd land upon that would be required for the unloading of the millions of tons of supplies the US landing forces would be chewing up each day. To carry out these West Coast invasions, it would probably require putting the majority of the US 7th Fleet into the Yellow Sea, a comparatively small, very shallow body of water, enclosed on three sides by China and North Korea. And in addition to this, the optimum landing beaches are only 300km away from the Chinese port of Dalian, where the Chinese house the majority of their cutting-edge naval weaponry, and a lot of first-strike capabilities. So the US 7th Fleet going into the area to support and carry out the naval invasions would become sitting ducks if the Chinese chose to escalate. But for now, let's look at two things. One, how successful do you think these landings here would be? And two, how do you think the Chinese will react to the US putting such a large naval force so close to Dalian, Qingdao, and even Beijing?
2: Oh, the Chinese will absolutely oppose that and probably take actions to prevent our ships from getting up there. They may lay lines, they may get in the way of our ships trying to go north, They don't want us up in that area. And the problem you face is the Pyongyang area is not a particularly good area for amphibious landings. The tidal fluctuations on what the South Koreans call their West Sea, the tidal fluctuations there are immense and it makes it a very difficult area to do amphibious operations, not impossible but also, if you're not taking North Korean nuclear weapons off the table, what a great nuclear target.
0: So, if the US wants to avoid antagonizing China or simply creating sitting ducks out of the 7th Fleet, then we need to talk about an East Coast amphibious landing, which on the East Coast really only leaves you with two major options Ham Hong or Chongsin. Ham Hong, about halfway up the North Korean East Coast, or Chongsin in North Korea's northeast corner. With Ham Hung's well-known defenses making it a virtual suicide mission to land there, the conversation would likely develop around a potential landing around Chongjin. But even if US Marines managed to get ashore, and they managed to get around the terrible supply situation that Chongjin would impose on them, once they're ashore, it would require US forces having to march 700 kilometers over the mountains through these tight ravines and mountain passes, which are full of North Korean bunkers in order to reach Pyongyang. And 700 kilometers is a long way to go. A landing on the east coast in Chongjin, is that a feasible strategy at all?
2: If you're talking about North Koreans who are desperate to stop our advance, you can expect that they're going to blow roads going through the mountainous areas that are there. I mean, there are some pretty major mountains in between the east coast and Pyongyang. Blowing those roads is going to make it very hard. Our infantry could likely get there, but... They're not going to have their supplies along with them past a few days with what they can carry. So that's a challenging proposition, not one that uh, would go very easily. That makes it very hard to operate and secure North Korea against those reserve forces and active duty forces. And even crossing the DMZ, your problem is the DMZ location was chosen, as I understand it, during the Korean War, because just on the other side of the DMZ was a wonderful artillery kill zone. Until we've really suppressed the North Korean artillery, that could be a problem. Now, we usually assume that's not too difficult a job, that we've got firefinding radars and so forth. But I see pretty good evidence that North Korea isn't gonna let those radars survive. And that's gonna be a very tough battle to fight.
0: The other major issue when planning in a North Korean invasion is the problem of indigenous supplies, or lack thereof. Whilst most armies are given supplies to keep their troops fed and armed, it's often assumed by planners that these armies will be able to scrounge additional supplies from conquered territory. We saw this quite a lot with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where in the early days of the invasion, when the Russians were still taking lots of territory each day, the Russian soldiers would have to carry less supplies with them so they could move faster, because they could simply refuel their vehicles from captured Ukrainian petrol stations or raid local shops for extra food and water. With North Korea, though, and its absolute lack of food and water, this option may not be open to the Allies. So this problem of lack of indigenous supply and the fact that the troops on the front line will not be able to get any food or water from anywhere but the tiny ports the invasion would have started from, how much does this impact potential planning for any invasion in North Korea?
2: There's some real challenges there, and food is certainly not going to be plentiful, Water will be a problem. The water in North Korea, I wouldn't want to be drinking that. So you've got some really immense supply issues that you would have to take on. While in theory we could do that, doing that on top of an amphibious landing with a very large force, which it would take, would be challenging. You know, North Koreans have an entire army corps that surrounds Pyongyang. They've got some of their very best and elite forces there. They've got lots of special forces in that area. And oh, by the way, we often forget, North Korea has about seven million reservists, which means not quite a third of their population are in the reserves. Those people may not all have rifles, but you can remember in the invasion of Iraq, We had trouble with the reservists who went after our supply columns. I think you could expect that in North Korea. So maintaining supply flow is not going to be an easy kind of thing to do.
0: And whilst the North Koreans may lack some supplies right now, particularly enough to arm all their reservists, if the US were to invade and the Chinese don't outright declare war on us, do you think beijing is likely to flood the north koreans with much better weapons and equipment giving them capabilities of arming their soldiers with better guns as well as arming all the reservists giving the defenders a much better force utilization in a similar fashion to how the us is managing to afflict major damage to the russians at the moment by keeping the ukrainian supply with good equipment are the chinese likely to get involved at least in that way
2: xi jinping has actually talked about this and back in 2017 i believe it was he said Look, North Korea, if you invade the South, you are on your own. If the U.S. and the ROC attack you, then we'll support you. So it matters which way this goes. If the North decides to attack South and then gets turned around and we do a counteroffensive, China theoretically would not support North Korea. But China regularly prepares to go into North Korea They have doctrine for intervention in North Korea. Russia would probably also go into North Korea, though probably going down the East Coast, just like they did at the end of World War II. We face the potential of Chinese forces getting to Pyongyang before we ever could. And that's complicated. We face the potential of Chinese turning on their uh, surface-to-air missiles from the Chinese side of the North Korean border and declaring a no-fly zone that would go down beyond the nuclear facility at Yongbyon. Um, Those are all possibilities that we could face, and if we can't use air forces uh, in the northern part of North Korea, that gets a little uh, dicey.
0: Well, expanding on that point, regardless of who starts the war, and we follow the Pentagon estimates. 5 million people die on day one, and around 20,000 die each day after that. And for the US, it would be an absolute slog across the DMZ, and even if they managed to reach the heartland of North Korea, it would come at a terrible cost in blood and treasure. And in which case, even if they get within 100km of Pyongyang, the Chinese doctrinal papers suggest that Beijing would then launch forces across the Yalu to secure Pyongyang quickly. And with Pyongyang occupied by the Chinese, the Americans are left with a pretty tough choice. So would the Americans then either keep fighting and push on to Pyongyang, therefore starting a larger war with China as they'd be pushing into Chinese-occupied territory? Or would they simply turn around and jump back to their old positions in South Korea and accept the new government that China would then put in place in Pyongyang, essentially meaning that millions would have died in this war and not much geopolitically would have changed apart from a new face in the posters in North Korea? How do you think this dilemma would play out for a US president? China
2: has made some indications that if it ever goes into the north, it may be prepared to pull back over time. But they're not going to do that unless South Korea is prepared to go in and take control and stabilize the north. The South Korean army is currently, in my mind, not big enough to do that. Now, South Korea's got huge numbers of reserves, but the reserves train three days a year. They get to fire 10 rounds a year from from a rifle mounted in a box. This is a difficult situation where South Korea is not really going to have the ideal forces to take control. So while South Korea may go up to Pyongyang, there's a real question of whether or not they could then go forward further and really stabilize the country, given the North Korean militarization. And You know, the Kim family has been very clear they don't view a war as being over when something goes bad and the regime starts getting invaded. They view it as being over in 20 or 30 years, and those reservists, unless we're prepared to give them incentives for supporting South Korea, they're going to be tough to deal with.
0: And even if we don't push troops into the heartland or we hit a stalemate in the front line, the North Koreans have one other non-nuclear option that can really complicate the matter, and that's chemical weapons. Could you take us through how chemical weapons are likely to be used in this conflict and how they factor into the decision-making here?
2: We have believed that North Korea historically would use chemical weapons along the demilitarized zone from the very beginning of a campaign. There's some evidence that weapons are stored there. US commanders in Korea have testified to Congress that perhaps as many as a third of the artillery rounds fired by North Korea from the beginning would be chemical. And South Korean chemical preparation, they're roughly prepared for the first strike, suits and masks and so forth. But once those things get contaminated, there's only so long you can stay in them. And finding replacements could be a real challenge. And you could use chemicals in tunnels you could use chemicals in a variety of ways i'm more convinced though that biological weapons are key here we have to remember that kim il-sung was not an armor officer he was not an artillery officer he was in his mind special forces that's why north korea has such an immense special forces capability and if you're looking at special forces Uh, chemicals help, but not immensely. Uh, But biological weapons, a team of special forces using biological weapons might be able to take down an airfield unless adequate preparations have been made and protections applied. Um, And North Korea would likely make those kind of attacks before their strategic warning of war, or at least they would try to and therefore catch people not in suits, not in masks. If this is smallpox or plague or agents like those, that could be really serious. Even anthrax could be a serious, serious problem for the South Korean forces.
0: So with all this in mind, we're stuck between a rock and a harm place. We either A, continue to let North Korea continue as it is, to which there's a chance they eventually reach a point where they have enough ICBMs to threaten the United States or B, we intervene and lose millions of men, women, and children in the process? Is there any option, apart from continuing the status quo, that you can see that would actually provide some sort of solution on the peninsula?
2: Well, I mean, the U.S. strategy has been, A, to maintain the status quo, but B, to try and change it in a better direction using diplomacy. Unfortunately, the diplomatic part has failed because him and his family are determined to establish dominance on the peninsula. This is a difficult proposition. I think the key is we have to recognize that Kim Jong-un is very concerned about outside information. You know, if you're in North Korea and you watch a South Korean K-pop show, uh, a Korean drama that you get on a USB drive is the typical way. That's 15 years of hard labor for many of the people who get caught doing that. That's how concerned Kim is. We hear that Kim closed the border with China in order to deal with COVID. Uh, that was probably number three reason in my mind. I think he closed the border because China was the source of much of that outside information. It came in from China with people who are entrepreneurs and Kim didn't like the entrepreneurs either because they made lots of money and when you've got money in a totalitarian society, you can bribe the officials. And the officials don't get paid enough not to take bribery. So uh, Kim was losing control, closing the border with China. That was North Korea's major trading partner. Many of those entrepreneurs have gone bankrupt and that's good for Kim. He's got better control. The problem is people are starving. People are not getting energy. People are not getting consumer goods. So that gives him some real troubles. And when we watch the way that his sister, for example, goes into uh, tirades about things that South Korea says, it's pretty clear that the Kim family is really concerned about what's going on in the North. All of that is to say, why don't we use information against Kim Jong-un? Why aren't we trying to tell Kim, if you do a seventh nuclear test, we are going to have produced one million USB drives with K-pop, K-dramas, and messages to your military telling them about how we're prepared to take care of them if the South takes control of the country. And we're not going to send those across the DMZ. We're going to get them into Pyongyang. That's what used to happen before 2004, and South Korea and North Korea made an agreement to stop that kind of thing. In fact, Kim is so concerned about this that about a year ago, he said that K-pop, their Korean popular music in South Korea, is a vicious cancer that is undermining the morals of his younger generation. And if it's not stopped, it could cause the regime to collapse like a damp wall. What's worse to Kim than the regime collapsing? I think we need to recognize that there are tools that we are really not using on the information side to try to help North Koreans understand that uh, we're not the bad guys, that Kim is the problem they face. If you do information that helps you, if you ever do go into the North to try and take control, because then you're setting expectations, we need to face the fact that the elites are going to be likely the elites, even after South Korea takes control of the North. We've got to make it look like that the elites are going to have a decent life. Just not a lot of that has been going on.
0: So any invasion of the peninsula militarily would be absolutely disastrous. For one, supply is a huge problem. The terrain is god-awful, And all of this occurs knowing that for every step you take closer to Pyongyang, you increase the chance of Pyongyang panicking and launching all of their missiles, under the frankly well-founded principle of the use-it-or-lose-it doctrine. But if the DPRK is set to imminently attack the South, the US can't just stand by. Surely there is something they could do, what to many might feel like a regional apocalypse. Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part two, use
3: it or lose it. I don't think we're drifting towards a war right now, but I do strongly feel that we're drifting towards a crisis which could be caused by some kind of accident, miscalculation, or other error on the side of either of the two Koreas, or even on the side of the United States. We have seen in 2022 a resumption of major US South Korea military exercises, which the North Koreans have used to justify their own significant ramping up of military drills. Chad O'Carroll is the founder of NK News and
0: NK Pro, as well as the Korea Risk Group. In addition to being the group's CEO, Chan is also a frequent writer and commentator for numerous publications focusing on the Korean Peninsula, having written about the two nations since 2010, producing some of the best analysis and reporting on the defense posture within the Korean Peninsula. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
3: And we've also seen the North Koreans conducting very large-scale air exercises outside of the normal winter training period. And most worryingly, those have been taking place right on the the inter-Korean border. And what my worry is, is with both sides increasing the scale and frequency of their exercises in the short to medium term, basically there's just a lot more chance that there's some tit-for-tat escalation which will result in some kind of accident that could have very serious consequences.
0: For most planners, a war with North Korea is probably too costly to want to seriously contemplate, but doing nothing would only embolden the regime in Pyongyang. So, for the most part, the West has chosen to wield its economic weapons, placing some of the harshest sanctions possible on North Korea. But these sanctions have also been in place for decades now, and the average North Korean citizen is suffering greatly under them. But yet, The regime doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So if sanctions haven't solved the problem, what should we be looking at next? Should we be tightening the screws and going even further with the sanctions? Or should we start to look at some sort of de-escalation or nuclear deal with North Korea?
3: No, I don't think more sanctions will change anything at this point. The North Koreans have just gone through almost three years of COVID lockdown in which their extremely hardcore closure of the border resulted in some months almost no goods going in or out of the country. In other words, the costs that they put on themselves were so much significantly higher than any of the sanctions we've seen in the past that it just proves that when it comes to issues of perceived national security, they are willing to allow the economic costs to snowball in in very large ways, and it doesn't deter or change their way of thinking. And because nuclear weapons are their um, insurance option very high national security priority to them they would almost undoubtedly not change their position on that even if sanctions increased 50 60 times the only potential caveat to that is if china were to stop the flow of fuel products into north korea oil refined petroleum the north koreans are very reliant on china for that And that would cause significant problems in the medium to long term if the chinese did that but there are many reasons china won't do that in terms of other options the main thing needs to be a focus on conversation and risk reduction outside of the lens of denuclearization because the north koreans have said they won't talk about that while the us and south korea and others say they will never recognize north korean weapons i think it would probably be a smart and realistic policy to recognize that they are posing a significant threat to not just their neighborhood but also the continental US and the more that this acrimony brews, the the more that there is a chance that those weapons could be used uh, resulting in the death of millions of people that seems to me a pretty urgent priority and goal to stop but for some reason makers are so obsessed with talking about denuclearization that they can't really bring themselves to have discussions on other issues unless there's some kind of tacit recognition on both sides that, the, that this is all about inching towards denuclearization.
0: Well, several commentators will point toward Kim Jong-un as being the problem here, and that without Kim, North Korea may be on a different path. So with that in mind, if we were to send six or seven really well-trained Special Forces guys and have them eliminate Kim Jong Un? Would that actually solve the problem? Will we see de-escalation on the Korean Peninsula?
3: I'd say the first big one is that North Korea recently conducted a nuclear posture review, which basically said that if the top of the command and control structure of the nuclear weapons system, i.e., Kim Jong Un, was some was somehow unavailable, that there would be automatic use of nuclear weapons in response to that situation that would be targeted against whatever act that has made Kim Jong-un unavailable. In South Korea for years has been this focus on creating what's called the kill chain system that is designed in the event of an escalation or war to be able to effectively take out the leadership in North Korea and the North Koreans clearly have been tracking this and have now decided to counter it with their own policy that would involve automatic nuclear weapons use. In terms of just the practicalities of what you suggest, it would not be easy by any means for an adversary of North Korea to to do some kind of surgical strike against where they believe the leader is. The only place or time I could think it could be conceivable and predictable is when there's a massive military parade in North Korea and all of the key assets are assembled in the center of Pyongyang at a predictable time and the leadership is there. I mean, that's the only sort of time on the calendar when everyone knows where everything is going to be with high confidence. But even if someone, an adversary was took a sort of outrageous chance and used an event like that to... To try and end the regime then i'm sure the north korean missile forces artillery forces special operations that you name it the navy the, the, there's there'd basically be a lot of assets still available to do a lot of damage and fundamentally is slowly but surely um, improving over time and it's made it much much harder for north korea's adversaries to think about the kinds of iraq style meddling or libya style meddling in which kinetic force is used to try and achieve political objectives
0: so if kim jong-un were to pass away by the hand of the enemy or by natural causes it would be fairly certain to have someone from the kim bloodline to continue his grandfather's dynasty but directly kim jong-un only has one official child kim joe but from the sparse accounts we have she's only about 10 years old at the moment and if we look further out from that to the rest of Kim's family, while well, Kim Jong-un's uncle, Kim Pyong-il, is probably too old for the job these days. So, whoever leads the country would likely be someone from Kim's generation. And looking at his direct brothers and sisters, Kim's oldest brother, Kim Jong-nam, often seen as Beijing's man in Pyongyang, was assassinated back in 2017. The next brother in line, Kim Jong-chul, is seen as the black sheep of the family, even being caught a few years ago sneaking into Disneyland and having been spotted numerous times following Eric Clapton around on tour. And this Western decadence is likely to not go down too well with the North Korean people. So that only leaves one other option Kim's younger sister, Kim Yo Jang, who is widely tipped to be the one to take over the reins of the country if Kim Jong Un were to pass away. But if Kim Yo Jang were to take control of North Korea, how would her policies differ from Kim Jong Un's? And with North Korea being such a male dominated society, and Kim Yo Jang being the first woman to take over the reins in the country, do you think she may feel like she needs to make some sort of bold gesture? To dispel any doubts present within the north korean military leadership
3: um so i don't think much would change to be honest a lot of people say that oh she's a woman the north korean people will never accept that or that, that there's it's too much of a, a male driven society and I, I i don't see it like that the key in in any authoritarian family succession driven system it's important for all stakeholders at the top for the system to sustain itself because otherwise their own positions of power could be in total chaos so if someone like kim yo-jong suddenly took over it's probably a much safer bet to give her your full support than plot against her because the the general public and the military and the korean workers party for seven decades now have been effectively told brainwashed if you will that the kim family bloodline is kind of god-given and has a right and authority to rule the country and it's somewhat like a religion and so to challenge that whoever if there was some general who wanted to take a punt at being the leader there's a very high probability that that person would be dead within a year such would be the infighting and factionalism that would develop in the wake of knocking out the the kim bloodline given you've got to consider like everywhere you go in north korea the portraits of the leaders everywhere and so to suddenly change that with someone else i think is quite hard to imagine and so it's in everyone's interest to support this succession with if it was Kim Yo-jong in some kind of caretaker role until his daughter is old enough to take power. Um, and I, I think she would probably be pretty hardline in terms of burgeoning her creden- credentials to military. That That's uh, a possibility we might even see her be more aggressive than Kim Jong-un to show them that she's serious. We had this, you know, some people argue that the shelling of Yon in 2010 was... Actually, in part, driven by the fact Kim Jong-un was, I think, 26 at the time, 27. And he wanted to show the commanders, the military uh, generals and so on, that he was a serious person and basically was behind the sinking of the Chonan and the shelling of Yontong Island. And so maybe we would see Kim jong do something similar in order to show people that she's serious and should be respected by a military I see quite a lot of
0: people online using the playbook from the previous Korean War in the 1950s to map out what a future conflict in the Korean Peninsula might look like. But do you think that's a fair comparison to make? And if not, how would you describe the North Korean Army's capabilities today as compared to the 1950s which people are taking from the playbook?
3: Fundamentally, the key differences now compared to then are the huge investments in uh, special weapons capabilities so chemical biological nuclear uh, solid fuel missiles liquid fuel missiles short medium long range submarine launched ballistic missiles they've got significant capabilities in these areas and the issue with missile warfare is it's very hard to defend against and so even if an adversary were to try and a surprise attack on North Korea—they might be able to wipe out some of the North Korean capabilities—an in initial attack. But uh, the North Koreans would still have a large amount of these special weapons capabilities, which they could launch very quickly on missiles. And um, you know, some of these short-range ballistic missiles can reach their targets in South Korea in like just a, just a, a handful of minutes. The North Koreans are building towards and are getting quite close, um, is a capability where if they sensed war was imminent, they would be able to preemptively destroy all South Korean military airfields within a few minutes. And that would would also cause significant damage to any aircraft assets on those airfields, which would include F-35 stealth jets that the South Koreans have bought, F-15s, F-16s. And if the North Koreans were smart and used tactical nuclear warheads with those short-range missiles, I mean, it would, it would really do significant damage and uh, just leave ground forces and Navy for South Korea at the start of a, of a war, it would really, Uh, be a big handicap now of course the south koreans would also count on u.s assistance uh, japanese potentially and that would presumably all be flown in from off peninsula but don't forget north korea does have increasingly credible intermediate range long range capabilities and i think what they're building towards is this blackmail capability in which that if they did that, they would then be able to tell the U.S. and others further action will result in us using nuclear weapons against your homelands, and that puts military leaders and polit- political figures in those countries in a in a pretty difficult position. Now, I'm not saying North Korea is going to get to that position anytime soon but we are inching closer towards that scenario and it doesn't look like there's anything to stop North Korea from re- reaching that capability within the next four or five years
0: this status quo the war our war posture we currently inhabit seems to have held now for almost 70 years so surely we can get another 70 out of this as back when these front lines were drawn, the world was a very different place. The Pacific was seen as a third tier front by the Americans. The Chinese were an economic backwater, and the South Korean economy would be more resonant somewhere we would view like the Philippines today, in contrary to the top 15 powerhouse they are now these days. South Korean companies are far more intertwined into the global economy, meaning any conflict here would be felt across the globe, and on top of that. Any intervention by the Chinese into the war, between North and South, would be almost war-ending, far above the effect it had when they entered the war in the 1950s. So what does happen if we end up in a war today? And how does the global economy hold up through it? And why is this issue all of a sudden becoming more and more urgent for all those involved? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 3 To Defang Pyongyang
1: Well, the North Korean system that was set up by Kim Il-sung and then dynastically inherited has long pursued a strategy it calls Juche or complete autarky from the rest of the world. And as some authors have argued, teaches the North Korean people that they are the purest race in the world and that interaction with the rest of the world, dependence on the rest of the world will corrupt them and destroy their value as human beings, their state. So they have survived by defying the world by exporting not anything the world wants but exporting tension and threats terrorism methamphetamines, counterfeit money and drugs and of course nuclear
0: terror michael green is a senior advisor and henry a kissinger chair at the center for strategic and international studies prior to june he also served as senior vice president for asia and japan and director of asian studies at georgetown university And before that he served on the staff of the u.s national security council first as director for asian affairs with responsibility for japan korea australia and new zealand and then as special assistant to the president for national security affairs and senior director for asia and we're thrilled to have him on the program today
1: the motto of u.s forces on the korean peninsula is fight tonight meaning we and our south korean allies and others in the command including australia we have to be ready to fight tonight that said a full-scale, nuclear, a full-scale war going to nuclear war, going to even large-scale conventional war, would be extremely difficult for the North Koreans to win, would be suicidal. So not likely, but certainly the US posture or allies posture is to be ready for it at any moment.
0: So I want to get a better idea though about how a war between North and South Korea would play out these days. So let's play that out a bit. For this exercise, let's say for the sake of the argument that the North Koreans catch us somewhat by surprise and launch a first strike attack on South Korea, what would that look like? When
1: I worked in the Pentagon, there was concern that they one would look like North Korean tanks rolling across the DMZ, North Korean commandos coming through tunnels under the DMZ, through light aircraft and submarines and, and, and attacking uh, all along South Korea and attacking uh, bases and infrastructure in Japan. That was the sort of threat from 1953 to the 90s. But with the collapse of North Korea's economy, the collapse of the support they once had from the Soviet Union and China, although China does now prop them up, and the development of nuclear weapons, the world's largest chemical and biological weapons arsenals, and of course, hundreds of delivery systems in the form of missiles that range South Korea, Japan, and even the United States. The war looks different. An outright invasion is very hard to picture. The North Koreans just don't have the food, the fuel, the tanks a sustainment to to propagate that kind of invasion. So day one looks more like a desperate move by the North Koreans because they have miscalculated to lose control of the escalation ladder. So not what we used to fear, which is North Korea launches an attack to unify the South forcefully like they tried to do in June, 1950, but rather a desperate, high-strung, heavily armed North Korea in desperation, um, probably because they miscalculated, starts firing their missiles and they're extremely uh, dangerous chemical and biological arsenals. There are 11,000 artillery tubes. open fires because they're scared, desperate. They've miscalculated. This does not begin with the U.S. deciding we're going to need regime change. It begins with provocations and North Korean calculated threats and pressures on the South Koreans or the Japanese getting out of control. That, that to me, is the most dangerous scenario. So it, it starts very, very incrementally. And then suddenly, it, if, if, it, if, it, if it goes all the way, it is very violent millions and millions potentially dying uh, on the Korean Peninsula and Japan, and possibly beyond by the way because of North Korean nuclear weapons getting into the wrong hands."
0: The US don't keep nearly as many troops on the Korean Peninsula as they once did, instead choosing to station the majority of the forces in Japan, making it easier for the US to pivot and deploy between any crisis in the Philippines or Taiwan or Korea. But after a devastating first strike on Seoul and likely other major South Korean cities, how hard would it be for the US to redeploy their forces from Japan back onto the Korean Peninsula through ports like Busan in the south, and then make their way north up the major highways, which by that point will likely be full of refugees fleeing south.
1: One thing that's
0: happened since the 90s
1: is that the US, Korea, our allies uh, have had to prepare not only for a scenario where North Korea attacks South Korea in a desperate gamble for resurrection, for unification or through miscalculation. Not just that kind of attack on the South, but also instability in the North. Uh, Since the 90s, this has been one of the other planning problems the the US and and Korea and allies have had to deal with. That North Korea, because of its internal weaknesses, collapses into civil war uh, chaos with dozens of nuclear weapons, chemical biological weapons getting loose. So whether it's a Counterattack attack or an insertion because um, instability in North Korea threatens the world, you're talking about a very, very daunting mission. You pointed to one of the problems, which is the roads would be clogged with refugees. In fact, during the Korean war, this was a tragic situation because UN forces, American forces open fired often on, on, on refugee columns because the North Koreans would infiltrate them extremely complicated logistically to move north uh, even more so if the North Koreans do what some planners fear, which is, which is set off a nuclear or chemical or biological weapon to make it impossible to go north. One possible solution is amphibious operations. The Marine Corps decisively turned the Korean war around with the Inchon landing from the sea. And one critical role for the Marine Corps and amphibious forces could be that. Um, another possible answer is we once thought China, why would the U.S. consider China a part of the solution? Well, because one of the greatest fears for the United States in any scenario where North Korea is collapsing, losing, falling apart is loose nukes, is nuclear weapons or chemical or biological weapons getting out. H- having Russia or China seize those nuclear facilities, many of which are north, away from the DMZ, closer to Russia and China, th- that in some ways is preferable to American forces and- you know, Korean and, and UN forces trying to get to those sites from the South, particularly since South Korea is not a nuclear weapon state. I think the US preference would be for nuclear weapon states, the US, or even, you know, we once thought relations are worse now, Russia or China. So extremely challenging um, to, uh, to operate in North Korea in any scenario, whether they've collapsed because of civil war or have used force and lost, and we're now trying to move north Um, to to clean up because we cannot just leave North Korea um, and loose nukes and chemical and biological weapons alone and neither can the Chinese by the way with their long border and their history of um, concerns about refugees and instability.
0: Even a limited war with North Korea though does present a time crunch as even though most defense planners would advocate for moving slowly and methodically up the peninsula or spending months to prepare for any sort of counterattack against North Korea if things are beginning to go wrong for the regime in Pyongyang, there is a roll of the dice each day that one of Kim's generals may decide to seize control amongst the chaos. And from the reports we have of senior generals in North Korea, quite a number of them advocate for going out in a blaze of glory and taking down as many South Koreans and Americans as they can with them. And we have no idea if a reformer general or a blaze of glory general would take the reins. So do you think US command will feel like they have to make less planned, more snap decisions to avoid the conflict dragging on, as the longer the war drags on, the more times we roll that die.
1: When famine struck North Korea in the, in the 90s and, and Kim Il-sung died, and there was uncertainty about how long Kim Jong-il would last, and the Soviet and Chinese support collapsed, and South Korea's president at the time, Kim Jong-sam, talked about going north unilaterally, all of that meant the US had to start seriously thinking about what we do in these scenarios where there's chaos in North Korea. It is even more complicated now because of the presence of nuclear weapons. Uh, And as I've said, the the large chemical biological arsenals and over a million North Koreans under arms. And I've been in these games and it's incredibly murky. You don't know, uh, because we don't have much contact with the North Koreans, what in in the scenario you describe, a general or a national defense commission or some leadership group or civil war group might do. We don't know if there's artillery fire or other exchanges, whether that's a precursor for one or another faction in the scenario uh, opening fire on South Korea or Japan. Best case scenario for dealing with that kind of complexity would be that the United States and Korea, Japan, but also China and Russia work together to contain the problem and to present a united front and go in and uh, deal with whatever political leadership emerges. We don't have that right now. The the U.S.-Japan Korea relationship is strong, despite some problems between Tokyo and Seoul. But our relationship collectively with Moscow and Beijing is terrible right now, for obvious reasons. And so we're actually worse positioned to deal with this instability scenario you're describing because we don't have strategic trust with Russia and China. And i'm not saying we need to therefore forgive chinese transgressions against taiwan or india or hong kong or that we should forgive putin for invading ukraine we won't do that i'm just pointing out how hard this is now even harder than it was because we don't have the basis to communicate effectively with moscow and beijing who also border north korea and would have influence to brear in the scenario described i mean i i worked on this quite a bit and in earlier in my career you could talk to the chinese and russians about this to some extent I don't think we can talk to them about it at all right now.
0: If you were a U.S. military planner, what would you put at the top of your priority list?
1: Well, the, the top priority for the U.S. and Korean forces has been kill chain. Ma- making sure that we have the counter-battery fire, the precision strike, the intelligence, the radar to immediately take out North Korean artillery missile sites along the DMZ that would threaten Seoul and South Korean civilians and our military infrastructure. Part of the challenge with taking out North Korean nuclear capabilities that emerged uh, in 2018 when President Trump talked about fire and fury and a bloody nose for North Korea. Part of the problem is North Korea has spent its entire existence digging caves, lots of caves, and it's hard to know where everything is. Yeah, there's a definite priority list, a definite target list, in fact a very robust and challenging list where special forces might have to be inserted, but it's not gonna get it all. And that's, that's part of the challenge
0: uh, here. Regardless of who starts the war, if the US enter into this conflict and slug it across the DMZ for weeks and start to enter the heartland in North Korea at terrible costs in blood and treasure, and then all of a sudden we see the Chinese come across the Yalu to secure Pyongyang themselves, do you think the Americans are more likely to keep fighting? Do you think the Americans are more likely to keep fighting, therefore engaging Chinese forces and risking further escalations to a war with China itself, or will the US simply turn around and just accept the new government China would put in place in Pyongyang, accepting that many people would have died for very little geopolitical change?
1: We did that you know, starting in November, 1950, we fought the Chinese. It was not a good experience for either side. Mao Zedong's son was killed. And at that point, China didn't have nuclear weapons yet. So it, that would not be a good outcome for either Beijing or Washington. And I think the Chinese side would know that. I think the other message, the president, we're going to, we're not going to station troops on the Yalu if, if you go south. We need to talk about how far south, and we need to talk about what your mission is, and if you try to impose a unilateral Chinese solution to North Korea, that's going to have long-term geopolitical consequences China won't like. That is going to create the collective security arrangement, the NATO in Northeast Asia China never wanted, because it would be too threatening. Now, if the Chinese had the ability, and I don't think they do, but if the Chinese had the ability to put in place a caretaker government that would ratchet down the tension, all the WMD, the nuclear question, and all the rest, Most U.S. governments would fight over that, particularly if that caretaker government was less threatening and controlled the WG. The problem is the Chinese don't have that ability anymore. When Kim Jong-un came to power, one of the first things he did was purge and brutally kill his uncle, who uh, was the main interlocutor with the Chinese. And he did it, most analysts believe, because he didn't want an alternative that the Chinese could ever put in place. So the Chinese relationship inside Pyongyang with the leadership is, is better than ours for sure, but it's not great. It does not give the Chinese the ability to manipulate the North Korean system. And um, the evidence of that is the way that Kim Jong-un brutally executed his own uncle and many, many political, military and diplomatic leaders, many of whom were accused of corruption and were you know, possibly on the take from China. The, the Chinese would love to have their people in place in Pyongyang but you don't survive Kim Jong-un's regime if you're seen as China's guy in Pyongyang. So they, they wouldn't be able to do it in all likelihood, but, but you know if, if the system's unraveling, maybe PLA generals reach out. Maybe something happens. And I don't think the US president at that point would say to the Chinese, no, don't impose a puppet government, particularly if that puppet government has the ability to at least temporarily solve all the problems I mentioned with loose nukes and chaos and chemical weapons.
0: In the event of a war breaking out on the peninsula, we can be fairly certain that the US would get involved in that conflict. But who else do you think would come to Seoul's aid? Do you think either the Japanese or the Australians or the Taiwanese or anyone else would join that fight?
1: Well, not the the Taiwanese. I think one of the reasons historians now realize that Mao Zedong intervened in the Korean War was because the U.S. sent the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Strait as a warning to China not to, you know, we saw the Communist bloc as monolithic. It was sent as a warning, don't try to take Taiwan also. But the Chinese side saw that as American intervention, and it was one of the factors that led the Chinese to intervene in the Korean War. So I think anybody who knows their history on the U.S. side will be very careful about Taiwan, and basically ask Taipei to be very, very quiet for a while and stand down, but, but stand by, because you know the region's more dangerous, but don't complicate the problem. There is no way the U.S. prosecutes any kind of conflict or instability operations or anything on the Korean Peninsula without Japan. The U.S.-Japan alliance has changed in ways where the Japanese now have reinterpreted their constitution to be there with us. But even before that, when ceasefire happened uh, in the Korean War, it did not change the U.N. Security Council mandate for the U.S. military to be there in the first place. And under that U.N. Security Council mandate, the Japanese essentially have given the U.S. the right to use bases such as Kadena and Yokosuka and Sasebo, if North Korea violates the armistice. So there's an automaticity almost to the Japanese involvement. And the North Koreans know that, and Kim Jong-un's forces were bombed with impunity by the US Navy and US Air Force for long periods of time operating out of Japan. So Japan's a target, and there's no no escaping, and the Japanese side knows that. Australia is not necessarily a target, although North Korea's missile ranges would now make that a possibility. Theoretically, but there are Australian forces embedded in the UN command and there are Australians on the ground. Certainly for the Five Eyes, for Australia, Canada, UK, possibly New Zealand, there are already people in uniform in the command structure.
0: Looking at all the options we have in front of us here, none of them seem particularly ideal. So, do you think there is a solution for the US on the table apart from just maintaining the status quo? I
1: mean, It's it's a good question. There are many, many sort of permutations or scenarios. My own view is that unification is better than the status quo. Freeing tens of millions of North Koreans from this Stalinist regime, finding a peaceful way to denuclearize the entire Korean Peninsula, removing the threat to the world, is a good place to be. The problem, of course, is you have to go through some pretty uncertain terrain to get to that place. And so you can't just wish away the regime. You certainly can't topple the regime without having to worry about what happens to all the nuclear weapons, what happens to the chemical and biological weapons. The the path from now to to unification is potentially cataclysmic. That said, if we could be in a peaceful unification stage, I think Japanese, Koreans, Chinese would all say that's where we need to be. Of course, Kim Jong-un's whole strategy is to make sure that's never possible, hence his large arsenal. We could probably do more to strengthen deterrence, the US Japan Korea relationship could be tighter, we could probably do more to even with strategic competition open channels with Beijing. uh, To be able to manage it, so we can incrementally improve on the status quo, but North Korea is a land of really bad options and the one we have is probably for now the least bad at most, in my view, we can tweak it to be better prepared.
0: I'll pose a bit of a moral dilemma to you. Imagine the classic movie scenario of you coming across a big pile of TNT in the back carriage of a train with a big cliche 80s digital clock counting down and from the clock, it looks like you only have 30 minutes left and there are 10 wires coming from the clock, but you have no idea which one to cut. So that leaves you with two options. A, leave the bomb alone and probably watch it explode in 30 minutes when the train reaches its target. Or B, cut a random wire, and have a 9 out of 10 chance of exploding the bomb right here, right now, rather than hitting his target. But you'd also have a 1 out of 10 chance of stopping the timer and saving the day. So what would you do? That decision isn't too far off what the US has to decide between now, should they maintain the status quo with North Korea, because it frankly seems like the safest option and the bomb doesn't blow up right now. But by doing nothing, Pyongyang moves closer and closer to building enough nuclear ICBMs that they could potentially threaten to wipe out quite a number of American cities. And I'm pretty sure Moscow or Beijing would love to see North Korea or the Americans cut each other down rather than having to cop a few nukes themselves. But going back to our analogy, it is just a countdown timer on the front of the TNT. It could be defective, or the bomb just couldn't go off. We may look back on the panic around these North Korean nuclear weapons in the same way many people look at the panic around nuclear weapons being placed into Cuba that at the time it seemed like it was a world-ending situation, but in reality, only a few years later, Russia could have hit the US with ICBMs anyway, making any missiles that would have been within Cuba, frankly, fairly irrelevant. And people look back at the Cuban Missile Crisis and often wonder why we would ever risk the fate of the entire world on that. Will we look at this situation in North Korea in 50 years under the same light? So there is an argument to do nothing, to walk away from the bomb, But if you're the kind of person who listened to that scenario and did nominate to cut one of the wires, then inaction might just seem like an unreasonable option to you. After all, you have a 1 in 10 chance of things going right. That a precision strike on Kim or a coup in the palace may bring about someone easier to work with for the Americans. Or even that the North Korean arsenal turns out to be a giant bluff, and we've been so worried about North Korea for so long but when everything comes to light, it may end up being a bark from a toothless bite. These niche options do have a small chance of working, but they also have a 9 out of 10 chance of things going wrong, of the North Koreans' kill chain kicking in, and them launching a preemptive nuclear strike upon Seoul, or even just the conventional artillery opening up, or even the spraying of anthrax around South Korean cities. And even if there isn't a strike towards South Korea, the chaos within the country could lead to nukes being sold to terrorists, or even China taking over the country, easily leading to a situation where you either declare war on China, or tell people that every single person lost in the first days of the war was for nothing. There is a 9 out of 10 chance that when you cut that wire it explodes, but it does explode here, wherever the train is right now, and not in 30 minutes. When you speak to some people in Washington, the people who assume that war is inevitable anyway, They'll argue, wouldn't it be better to have this conflict here and now, before Pyongyang attains the ability to nuke American cities? And there is some merit to that argument. But this question is bigger than that. The question really is, to intervene or to not. And no solution here is at all appealing, with most either resulting in large-scale war with China, or millions of dead Americans, Koreans, and Japanese but the reality is that countdown clock is ticking all the way down to a point when North Korea has the ability to threaten the U.S. And from here on forward, each and every U.S. president will be staring at that bomb and its incessant countdown timer. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week, our last show for the year. And what a year it has been. With us this year putting out more content than we have ever before putting out over 5,000 minutes of content just this year, a big jump from the previous one. But as good as that is, we're gearing up to do even more next year, and we're very excited about it. So if you want to keep up to date with all of this upcoming content, or anything else we have going on here, you can find all of the links and info on our Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Pod. Or if you can follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz, Oz in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. And speaking of our Patreons, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, George Hively, who is the latest Patron to sign up as of time of recording. This show really is only possible because of the support of listeners like George, so if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we really would appreciate it. For now, this episode on North Korea is all thanks to you, George. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is North Korea's Foreign Policy by Scott Schneider for a look at how North Korea views its surrounding powers. The second is North Korea Confidential by Daniel Tudor for a more individual look at things like defectors and reintegration with the South. And the third is The Impossible State by Victor Cha for a history and future for the Hermit Kingdom. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Bruce Bennett, Chad O'Carroll, and Michael Green. It was an amazing panel to finish out what has already been an amazing year. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Danielle Zavella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, Robbie Sutton, Nate Ostilla, Genevieve Donald and May, Nick McNally, Almad al Almad, and Sean Carter-Lem, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tanno, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner. Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. As you may be able to already tell, we just brought on a number of additional writers and specialty researchers here at the show as we prepare to bring you even more content in 2023. Until then, though, the red line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening and good night.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline Podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.